Welcome to episode 255 of X-Lapsed, where not only is it our 13th month anniversary of this program, but it's also the, uh, I guess, the September season finale. Uh, we are in October now, but uh, we are wrapping up the DCBS shipment for September, which were all the August books. So um, I, I guess we got like a, a whole mishmash of uh, late summer, early fall stuff that's uh, kind of coming to an end right now. And of course, you guys know me, I don't know how to read a calendar, so uh, grains of salt and all that sort of stuff. Anyway, let's get into today's issue. This is New Mutants Volume 4, number 21, had a November 2021 cover date. Feels like it's been a long time since we covered an issue of New Mutants. Maybe maybe it has, I, I don't remember. <laughs> um, now, the story's called, and it's kind of, uh, kind of uh, spoils what happens here, uh, Krakoa Welcomes Gabby Kinney is the name of the uh, issue. Written by Vida Ayala with art by Rod Reese. Letters, VCs Travis Lanham and Joe Caramagna. Designs Tom Muller. Head of X for now is Hickman. Edits, Bisa, Brunstad, White, and Sabalski. Cover price $3.99. And this one went on sale September the 1st of 2021. So exactly one month from the time that uh, this episode is hitting the airwaves. Now we open on the moon. We're right outside Summerhouse, or right outside the dome that is outside of Summerhouse. There, Warpath has taken his class of trainees to, uh, well, clean that dome that covers Summerhouse. So, uh, I guess this class, uh, does do windows, huh? They're also here to, uh, round up and relocate a bunch of space slugs that have, uh, congregated around the dome. Now, since we're going to be spending, like, half the issue with Warpath's class, uh, none of whom are going to make our roll call page, I figure maybe I should introduce as many of them as I can right here. And I tell you what, it's a good thing I've got the always accurate Marvel Wiki on speed dial. So let's meet our class. We start with Monica Sellers, a retired tennis player who represented both Yugoslavia and the United States. Hmm, wait a minute. Wait a minute, got my, got my uh, wikis uh, crossed there. Um, <clears throat> Monica Sellers is a young mutant with uh, stretchy limbs. Kind of like Kamala What's-Her-Face over in Ms. Marvel. Like, just stretchy arms, basically. We got Galora, and she's the one with the wings that, uh, didn't Karma have the hot pants for over in the Pride special? Are we to assume that there was a pretty big age difference between them, or do we just not think about it? We got Cam Long, who is, uh, just a dude. We've got the insta-cringe named Brother Nature. And we've got Leonora Ang, a telekinetic with glasses. And there is a lot of talking on these opening pages, uh, which... I mean, when we're dealing with characters we hardly know, may not be the best way to get the reader's attention. I mean, I don't know or really care about this special class, and uh, I didn't even know it was a thing until right this minute. Anyway, uh, Aang uh, chases a rogue space slug into a crater, which 
she then quickly learns is already occupied by... A brood. A brood. Okay. Info page. More Warpath diary entries, which uh, I'm still not enjoying. I don't think that they're really adding much to the story here. Now, he's he's got his writing prompts, of course. Um... The first one is, write about an incredibly difficult choice you had to make in your life. The second is, what are some silver linings and hard lessons that you've learned? So, some burning questions, right? Um, Feels a lot like uh, writing prompts you might get if you uh, attend a support group. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later on. For now, let's hop into the actual double-page spread of Roll, Call, and Cred and meet, uh, well, I suppose, the actual cast of this book. Our characters include Danny Moonstar, Karma, Wolfsbane, Warpath, Magic, Anole, Scout, Rainboy, Cosmar, and No Girl. And from here we hop back to the hatchery, where, if you recall from last time, the Shadow King's Irregulars were playing Weekend at Gabby's, and uh, they had just run into Rain and Tempest. Now, if you've been listening to this show for any length of time, you'll know that uh, we've kind of been hemming and hawing about the rules of resurrection as it pertains to clones. It's been... A topic we've touched on fairly often, especially uh, regarding you know, Madeline Pryor over in the uh, Hellions book. So, Anale explains the sitch, and he raises that question to Rain, right? So, like, what do we do with clones here? Well, Rain acts completely ignorant that it was ever an issue in the first place. So, uh, maybe I just over-romanticized it. I, I mean, that's certainly not outside the, uh, outside the realm of possibilities here that I would do so, but it sure feels like a... An afterthought here, you'd figure people would know about it. Anyway, the way Rain looks at it, Gabby should have no problem being resurrected, since she is both mutant and Krakoan. Cosmar reminds her about how uh, that didn't quite pan out for old Maddie Pryor over in Hellions. And also, how when Gabby asked the gang about her potential for resurrection, it was pretty much hand-waved away. Now, Rain concedes that the Irregulars have a good point indeed. And then she plays the advocate card, asking why the kids didn't just come to her for help, which, I mean, that's kind of laughable, isn't it? Uh, Considering how little help the legacy New Mutants have been to the younger generation here. I mean, if we look at the legacy characters here, only Warpath seems to be intrinsically interested in helping the younglings, right? The rest of them are kind of just there. Now, another reason they wouldn't have gone to Rain for help is because, uh, well... No Girl as Scout reveals that uh, Wolfsbane was the last person to see Gabby alive before the gala. And, uh, well, this is news to Rain. She don't remember any of that. Now, Tempest promises the kids that the Five will bring Gabby back, if for no other reason than to figure out how she died and who killed her. And then we're reminded that a far more important character also died during the Hellfire Gala because we mustn't ever forget about that. Scene shift over to Moonstar and Karma, as the former practices her archery. Now, if you remember, last issue ended with them saying, we need to talk about rain, right? Well, they must have tabled that conversation until they could both leave the sextant, grab bows and arrows, and head over to the archery range, because that's exactly how this conversation begins. So I'm picturing, like, Danny, you know, uh, Karma coming in and saying, hey, we need to talk about rain, and Danny being like, okay, hold that thought. Then leaving to gather her gear and uh, packing up, maybe grabbing a bite to eat, drink a water, leaving the house, and then finally being in the right position to have this conversation. Anyway, what we're getting to is here that they are worried about rain for a few reasons. 
And those reasons are, you know, all that stuff that we learned about Tyr. You know, maybe he's still alive, maybe he's not. He's Whatever the case, he's not eligible for resurrection. We, we know a little bit, but we don't know what we don't know. Also, Karma did see Rain and the Shadow King having a little chat over at the Green Lagoon last time. And, of course, uh, Shan has a history with Ol' Farouk, so... This is uh, worrisome, for sure, especially after she was confronted about it and acted quite peculiar indeed. From here, we head back to the moon, and Warpath and his class fight the Brood. Uh, Warpath himself isn't too concerned right off the bat because, you know, Brew is the Brood King, and, uh, I mean, you all remember that horrible King Egg story, right? So, yeah, James doesn't think that this is going to be that big a deal. And, you know, you would hope that uh, this would get an editor's footnote, <laughs> but it doesn't, you know, like, hey, this is the story he's talking about, that horrible thing in, what was it, X-Men number 9 and 10 or 8 and 9 or something like that. Maybe they figured that it would confuse the non-existent new readers who only came in with volume 6 of X-Men and be like, wait a minute, wait a minute, there's only three issues of X-Men. How, how can you be referencing issue 10? Boy, could you imagine how confusing that would be to a uh, non-existent new reader? <clears throat> Now, on the subject of footnotes, uh, anytime the death of Wanda is mentioned, it, it's, you know, footnote city. we got to make sure that uh, we refer people to the sold-out X-Factor number 10. From here, the kids use their powers in tandem to take down the rogue brood. But unfortunately, they don't have any time to celebrate because, well, if we look on the horizon, a stampede of rogue brood are barreling their way. From here, we hop into an info page, and this is a letter from The Five, which seeks to clear up, you know, the dupe confusion once and for all. Now, The Five claim that clones can be viewed as being their own person, comparing them to the identical, to being the, the identical twin of, you know, the, the prime copy, I guess, or the prime version of the character. And they back up this point of view with... Backups. Cerebro backups. These characters have Cerebro backups, so it stands to reason that they are their own person. Now, the dupe rule was put into effect to avoid making duplicates of the same still-active mutant. But that didn't take into account how a clone can be an individual unto themselves. And in this letter, they list three examples. Gabby, of course, Evan Apocalypse, and Maddie Pryor. Huh. Now, the letter is signed by all five of the five in those really awful-looking signature fonts. This feel this like I don't want to say it takes me out of it because that'd be silly, but uh, yeah, the the signatures just don't look good. It reminds me of like in the mid to late '90s when uh, when like digital stuff was starting to become prevalent, and like logos would start to become like a little bit more 3D and like orb like. Like you'd have like the round ball with the X on it, so it wouldn't be like a flat X. It would be like a beveled, rounded. It just didn't look great, <laughs> and it uh, really clashed. With the, you know, regular art around it. These fonts uh, are similarly clashy, at least in, in my opinion here. But I do get, uh, you know, I do get caught up in stupid things. Anyway, back to comics, and we are back to the hatchery, and Gabby is resurrected. And, uh, you know, she pops out of the gold ball, and she is confused, which, of course, stands to reason. Uh, Hope is wearing the Cerebro helmet this time out, and she downloads Gabby's memories into her, you know, husk, I guess. And it makes you wonder if the Quiet Council knows about this one. Huh. And uh, maybe this is a case where it's better to ask for forgiveness than permission. Now, we learned earlier in the issue that Cerebro actually ran a backup right before the Hellfire Gala. So the entire island was swept, and memories were, were loaded up. And so everything is fairly current, right? This isn't like uh, we have like a Gabby from, you know, weeks and weeks ago. This is the Gabby from right before the Hellfire Gala. 
So, Gabby collects herself, and she takes one look at Rain, snicked, and leaps for her. So, at least from uh, whatever's left of Scout's memories, Rain did have a hand in her death. Wolfsbane, however, still does not remember a single thing. But then remembers one of her last memories from before the gala, in which she was visited by the Shadow King. And she also recalls how emotionally vulnerable she was during that visit. And we also saw Rain deliver Gabby to the Shadow King right before the gala issue, so, I mean, we saw some of this stuff here. So, Farouk, I guess, is behind all of this, which, eh, I mean, after all the build here, uh, I, I think I was expecting there to be a little bit of a zig instead of a zag. <laughs> You know, it wasn't going to just be O-Comics Razor, where it's like, okay, well, it has to be the Shadow King. And then eight issues later, it's like, oh, yeah, by the way, it was the Shadow King. It just feels kind of, uh, it falls a little flat here. Now, Rain asks Gabby for the opportunity to prove herself and help her. And Gabby, you know, she's still kind of muddy-headed here, but she seems okay with it. Yeah, she is, you know, a little trepidatious, and she's also hungry. Uh, she also asks if the five are going to get into any trouble for bringing her back here, and they're like, eh, let us worry about that, kid. And from here, we hop back up to the moon. Uh, we have Monica getting KO'd by a brood. And so seeing this, Warpath goes, like, nuts. He sees Red, and he just starts beating the hell out of all of them. Well, the brood. That is, not his, not his students. A brew then shows up to congratulate the class on beating the rogue brood. Uh, he seems to be claiming this was kind of a test of sorts. And Warpath is not happy at this uh, at all here, and he even informs Brew that he'll be tattling to the Quiet Council about this. He then says that he hopes that Brew is still an ally, and suggests that the uh, tiny Brood King maybe send his hive to live on the far edge of space. And Brew, you know, Brew is a, a little, you know, trustworthy fellow, right? Uh, well, he gives Warpath a somewhat dismissive, right. You know, so I don't know what this means for uh, for our little friend Brew. But that's the end of our scene on the moon. From here, we head back to the sextant, where Magic is chugging some uh, poop bean juice, while Danny and Shan uh, talk a little bit more about Rain. Rain then enters to chat about the Shadow King and what he'd made her do, or at least what she thinks he made her do. And the four ladies vow to handle this together. And we wrap up with a great big spread of Amal Farouk's ugly smiling mug. And, of course, that's where we leave it. Uh, next episode, we are going to be, well, maybe wrapping up the first arc in X-Men Unlimited with uh, number four there before we hop into the, well, whatever X-Men Green is going to be. But for now, let's talk about this, uh, well, this shoe-droppy issue of uh, New Mutants here. We have huge changes to the Resurrection Protocols uh, regarding, you know, the dupe rule that we've been... I guess it's been kind of nebulous since we first heard about it, um, especially with, you know, we've talked about how, like, depending on who you are and who you know on Krakoa, you may get some special treatment here. We talked about the Stepford Cuckoos getting resurrected and how, according to the rules as we understood them before, they probably shouldn't have. Uh, we also saw Old Man Cable get resurrected, which, I mean, was also a no-no. But here it's confirmed, at least from the Five's point of view, once and for all, that there is a difference between, um, you know, resurrecting a clone of a character who's still active and a, I guess maybe it's like a grandfather or grandmother clause, where it's like if you were around, if you were a clone and you were alive before, you know, the whole Krakoan era began here, that you're, well, you're kind of your own person here. You're not being resurrected from a Cerebro backup, which I think maybe that's where we could draw the line there. If you're, 
drawing from you know a cerebral backup of a character to resurrect a, another version of that character. And I mean, I think I'm, as as I said that I'm I'm kind of bewildered because I don't I think it was in the cable issue where we found out that the dupe rule extended to time travelers and alternate dimensions and stuff like that. So maybe this is going to lead to a bit of a uh, a schism between the five and the quiet council. And considering the power, like the the actual power, not not so much the political clout, but the power that the five wields. I mean, they are. Pivotal. They are basically the entire Resurrection Protocol. They are the face of this new era. And if they disagree with, you know, the you know de facto government of the island, it could lead to some very interesting stories. Now that said, uh, allow me to raise a potentially weird point here. Um, I feel like since this era has begun, there's uh, been a focus on certain titles. You know, there have been there's certainly a hierarchy to the uh, the X-Men line right now, where I think we were supposed to pay attention to certain books, and really, the other ones were just around for the ride. And here we are getting big revelations in these side books that uh, I feel like the readership may have been trained to not really concern themselves with. I mean, we have the Onslaught revelation over in Way of X. That's, that's a huge thing to drop here. The, the suggestion that all of the uh, out-of-character moments from our cast were a result of uh, Onslaughtian influence. That's a pretty big deal. Over in Hellions, a book that, you know, not as many people are reading, we're launching the Chimera Initiative here. So that's a big deal as well. That goes all the way back to the uh, the initial Hoxpox uh, miniseries. Is, is, is. And here, in New Mutants, we're addressing the duplicate situation. And, uh, you know, as much as I like it, and I think this is the way that these books should be going, I just feel that Marvel's done a horrible job getting folks invested in these side books. They get so little um, press, so little hype, relatively speaking, to where by the time it gets to the point where they're starting to drop some shoes, I think a large portion of the potential readership has uh, already moved on. And they're still out there buying, you know, the X-Men flagship and Wolverine and not much else. I mean, we could even talk about uh, X-Factor number 10, right? Where I'm sure there are folks out there who've been following that book for the entirety of its volume for as long as it existed who couldn't get issue number 10 because of the damn looky-loos who popped in, hearing that it was a big deal. And it all stems back to how the hype is perpetuated, right? Um, X-Factor, I think, by and large, we were trained to think that that was not a book that was going to matter in the grand scheme of things. So retailers got wind of that, readers caught wind of that, and orders were adjusted so that there would be less copies of X-Factor clogging up shelves. Then, issue 10 hits, a huge thing happens in it, and due to how under-ordered the book was, some of the folks who loyally followed the, the series from issue 1 may not have had the opportunity to grab a first print of that issue, and that, that kind of sucks. I compare that phenomenon to uh, Midnight Mass. <laughs> if folks are familiar with Midnight Mass, it's uh, Christmas Eve, uh, a mass at midnight for Christmas, and it's usually a packed house, which is to say people who don't go to church all year long will go to church that day. So you have the folks who go to church week in and week out who may not be able to find a seat for the biggest night of the year. <laughs> and I don't know how relatable <laughs> that uh, analogy is, but uh, that's kind of how I see some of these books here. We've been trained to think that they're not going to matter. The retailers have been trained to underorder, And then like when something big happens, it either feels like an afterthought and something that really doesn't matter as much as it actually should, 
or it's something that the damn speculator apps and Bleeding Cool latch onto, which causes it to sell out before the loyal readers can actually get a hold of it. And that's more of a general uh, observation slash complaint here. It's not something I could hold against this issue because this issue did its job. It's just that uh, the people who hype these books aren't doing their job, or they're, they're just not doing it as well as they could. Now, in addition to our uh, clone question being at least sort of kind of answered, uh, we had a couple more story spurs here. Uh, we had The Brood. I mean, the brood are still very, very boring to me. They've never been exciting to me. They're, you know, they, to me, they're just another alien race uh, in in the Marvel cosmic ether, which has never really been my thing, as you guys know. Uh, but we do have a question here: whether or not Brew is still an ally, and I think that's pretty interesting here because I don't know that uh, outside of the time that he kind of went primal, I don't know that there's been a time where we'd really worried about Brew's loyalty, or even, I guess, even thought about Brew's loyalty. But here he is in a position of power, and uh, he's being snitched on by Warpath, and kind of gives him a dismissive reply. He's like, yeah, whatever, you know? So maybe we're going to have more Brood stuff happening? I I don't know how I feel about that. I I like Brew. I just hate the Brood. But I will say I'm happy that it actually picked up the story from that awful two-parter over in X-Men Volume 5, because... Had we not seen any, you know, further mentions of that, it would have made me feel like we wasted our time even more than I already do feel like we wasted our time with that story. So it's something. It's not much, but it's something. Now let's talk about the Shadow King here. And I kind of mentioned this during the synopsis here. Um, Him being revealed as being the big bad is underwhelming. Feels a little been there, done that, which uh, we'll talk more about in a moment. Um, I think after spending so many pages, so many issues... Uh, you know, with this subplot percolating, I was hoping to be surprised. And I mean, that's not something I could actually hold against a book for, you know, not surprising me, but if it was always just going to be the Shadow King, then why didn't we just get on with it? And again, that is an observation slash complaint that I feel a little weird levying on this book here, because, I mean, we don't know the inner workings of editorial, but there has certainly been a feeling of uh, water treading here. Right, um, That's just been from the start, and that's not exclusive to the X-Men books here. I'm not a comic book editor. I don't know what goes into editing comics. But I do know that you'd probably... It'd stand to reason that there has to be some timing at play, right? So certain things can't happen until some other things do. And sometimes books run late, and sometimes we have, uh, you know, pandemic-related closures, and things happen. So if a book starts to tread water for a little bit, I assume that there's a good reason for it. But to tread water for quite this long, and then to deliver basically exactly the reveal that we expected so long ago, it just feels a little bit underwhelming here. And to piggyback off of a point that I raised a couple episodes ago here, I feel like every you know current year writer wants to have their version of a classic story be told. Like we talked about Jonathan Hickman's Secret Wars and Jonathan Hickman's Inferno. Well, here we have Vida Ayala's Shadow King Saga. And whether that winds up being good, bad, or indifferent really isn't the point. I, I just feel like we've been there, we've done that. And despite this not being like a one-to-one recreation of the you know original New Mutant Shadow King saga, it's still evocative enough to where, I don't know, part of me just feels like that's the, the whole point of it, is so uh, they could do their own version of a classic story, or put their spin on a classic story. Which again, isn't a bad thing. I, for the most part, I enjoyed this issue, It just feels like we've been there and done that. Now, I have one more thing I want to talk about here, and it's potentially dicey, I suppose. Uh, 
The dialogue here was uh, fairly grating at times. Um, very, I don't know, for a lack of a better term, self-help virtue signally. It felt like I was reading Reddit posts. And uh, if you ever, you know, browse Reddit here, you'll find that uh, there are like copy pasta responses here, you know, copy and pasted responses, like when you want to look like you care about something or that you care about your fellow person. You really try to put that on Front Street. You want everyone to know that you're a really good person and you really care. And that's kind of what I got from the, uh, the dialogue here. It felt, I don't know, it just didn't feel real. It didn't feel organic. It felt like people were trying far too hard to understand each other's trauma. And I mean, trauma is certainly something that could be explored in these books, but uh, I, don't know, I think it needs to be a little less Psych 101 and a little more, I don't know, uh, engaging perhaps. And I mean, I have no doubt that there is an intrinsic desire here to shine a light on this sort of a situation here, and I feel like the motivations behind it are very good. But it feels very shallow, very inch-deep, mile-wide, and since it is tackling something that does loom large in people's lives, it's hard to really criticize. I don't even want to use the word criticize here, because like I said, I, I believe the motivations behind this and the intent are, are pure. But at the end of the day, our creative team wasn't hired to write and produce a self-help pamphlet. They were hired to write a story using characters who have, you know, nearly a half century's worth of, uh, of history, who have their own personalities here. And the dialogue we get in certain scenes here feels very cut and paste, uh, does not have a personality behind it. It's, um... I mean, you could take any of these dialogue balloons, put them to any character, and they'd, uh, you know, they'd deliver exactly the same way. Very interchangeable, um, inorganic, and uh, almost to the point where it became a distraction to me. And, you know, uh, in fairness, that may just be a Chris problem. You know, I think we talked about X-Corp number four when uh, our pal Professor Allen wrote in and mentioned that, you know, sometimes there are these topics that pop up in comics that you have some familiarity with that just trigger a reaction when it uh, when it doesn't really land the way that you think it should here. And I mentioned in that discussion that one of the topics that kind of catches me that way is, uh, is psychology. I mean, I've had uh, extensive training in trauma-informed care and over a decade in psychological coursework. And to see something that, uh, you know, my instincts tell me is like the Reddit approximation of uh, higher education, it kind of sticks with me. Again, that, that is very likely a Chris problem. That is not me saying that there was not good intent behind this, because I'm sure that there was. It's, uh, I don't know, it just didn't ring as organic or as intrinsic as I perhaps would have preferred it to. Now, before we wrap up this segment, should we should we talk about the art? Do we have to talk about the art? I mean, it's 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 Rod Reese. It's fantastic. It's excellent. It's uh, I feel like a broken record here. This is some phenomenal, phenomenal work here. I really, really enjoy it. It's definitely nice to have Rod back. Now, overall, despite you know a couple of Chris problems, misgivings, and whatnot, I think this was a very good issue, and I think it's certainly one that's worth your time because. It does actually, you know, we're, we're laying another slab here. We're laying another step in, in climbing up to the uh, top of this story. And I think this issue, regardless of whether or not it's ever mentioned again or if it's rendered into being just a footnote in another issue of a more popular book, it's definitely worth your time. Now let's hop into the mailbag. We got us a letter from Peter, and he has a question. And it's a great question. It's one that I really uh, haven't stopped to think about, though I probably should have. Now, Peter says, This has been bugging me since Hoxpox. 
Why, from the top on down, is anyone on Krakoa okay with the no precogs rule? My immediate thought would be, it sure is weird that Mora, Chuck, and Mags don't want us to know anything about how wildly successful this all works out. And you know, while I think the no precogs rule is kind of the unwritten fourth law of Krakoa, I don't think anybody knows about it besides Charles and Magneto and uh, Mora. Otherwise, I don't think we'd have the Mystique situation still kind of bubbling away. If, uh, if she knew right off the bat that precogs would never, ever come back, then she'd have burnt the place to the ground a long time ago. You know, they're kind of doing the whole carrot on a, on a string thing with her, stringing her along, making her do their bidding, making her do the stuff that they don't want to get their hands dirty with, under the, you know, with the understanding that if you, you know, if you toe the line, if you act right, then you'll be rewarded. But it does beg the question why that rule's in place at all here, because in a perfect world here, we're headed to, you know, a future where the mutants don't lose, right? So that's only good news, right? I figure that would be something that would embolden Krakoa and make them uh, unify them even more. Maybe I've lost the plot. Maybe it's been way too long since I've read Hoxpox, but... Uh, I don't know, maybe this was made perfectly clear in an issue of that or in an early issue of X-Men, and I've just forgotten it. But, you know, when you ask this question, it conjures up a lot of uh, thoughts in me that I really haven't considered before. Unless, of course, we're actually headed to something rather nefarious. I don't know, part of me thinks I need to revisit the old Hoxpox stuff here because I am kind of scrambling here. But that is some very interesting food for thought, and I want to invite anyone listening to, uh, to share your two cents on this uh, on this question here unless of course you've already read inferno and they already answered these questions because then I don't want to know but if you're uh, if you're theorizing just like uh, your humble host here I would love to hear theories and we can discuss them in the lead up to the uh, the big seismic shift of inferno but thanks again for writing in with that question there Peter I really really appreciate it now I mentioned at the top of the show that this is the uh, you know the I guess, September finale of the August issues of this show. So, uh, well, we have a ritual for the finales here, and that is taking a look at the Comicron sales charts. And now we've made it to June 2021, and if you remember last time, I had mentioned that uh, in the July sales charts, we're going to start to get numbers again. Well, I was wrong, because we're actually going to get numbers today. The numbers actually started in June. So yes, we've got numbers today, and that's uh, that's wonderful. It's, uh, I mean, we're not going to have much fun with it today, but as we uh, as we continue, we're going to be able to hopefully see some trends and get some semi-accurate data, <laughs> I guess. Um, now, to get us into the June gestalt here, let's go through the top five books. Uh, the top-selling book was Venom number 35 slash Legacy number 200, a $10 book. Which I'm sure not only topped the uh, you know units shipped, but also the dollars uh, taken in for Marvel there. Number two, Spawn Universe number one, uh, which I have not read. And to be completely honest, I'm not even sure if I ordered it. I, I think I am one of the five people left on the planet still ordering you know the regular Spawn book. <laughs> I haven't read it in years, but I still get it. I don't know, my monthly order just feels incomplete without it, and... Uh, since Todd keeps his books at $2.99 each, or at least Spawn is only $2.99, I feel like that's something I should support. Number three, Star Wars War of the Bounty Hunters number one, which, um, of course, these are the units shipped, not the units sold. So if you were to go to any local comic book store, you would find um, literally bales of this issue, um, probably clogging up 50 cent and 25 cent bins because, boy, this thing was ordered like nuts. 
Number four, Berserker number three. I've not read any of the Berserker stuff yet, but uh, from what I hear, it's a... Well, actually, I haven't heard anything about it other than the fact that Keanu Reeves is a part of it. That's all I've heard about it, and it has a really nice art. I don't know anything about the story. Nobody talks about the story. I don't know. Uh, number five for the month of June was Batman number 109, and of course, I mean, that's one of the 7,000 Batman books that uh, DC puts out every month, and I guess we can call it the flagship, so it stands to reason that it's going to sell pretty well. It's funny, I was telling a friend that uh, I was putting in my DCBS order um, just uh, about a week ago for whatever month <laughs> that I filled it out for. I think it was uh, November or so, and I still order a good handful of DC books. I haven't read them in ages, but... Uh, you know, I'm, I'm of the mind that eventually I'll want to, and it'll be easier if I actually have them to uh, to do so. I don't know if that day will ever come, but uh, hey, if it does, I'm going to be ready for it. And I was going through, because I do buy the flagship Batman book, you know, to get that, uh, that Bat-lapsed show uh, off and running. <clears throat> but uh, I do still keep up with it, and I was shocked by how, how far I had to scroll to get past the Batman books. I mean, there were, I felt like there were dozens of Batman books here. And that's not counting the Joker books and the Harley Quinn books. And then I get down to Future State and there's like three or four Batman titles there. I, you know, we talk about bloat with the X-Men books, but, uh, oh boy, could you imagine being a Batman completionist right now? You'd have to sell your car and put a second mortgage on your house. It's ridiculous. And, and I'm sure uh, less than 5% of these things are actually worth reading. Anyway, that's the top five. Let's hop into the X-Books. And, well, we're going to go right to number six. Number six, the sixth highest selling, or not highest shipping. I want to make sure I make that clear. Shipping book of the month is Demon Days Marico number one, which, oh boy, you could choke a dinosaur with how many copies of that thing you still see in the store. So uh, I don't know why they're ordering it in such high quantities. I don't know if it's, um, there must be an incentivized variant or, or several incentivized variants because this thing's shipping a lot, just nobody's taking it home with them. I mentioned a couple of months ago when I went to that dollar day sale at one of the local shops here that I counted over 70 copies of this thing clogging up the racks. And like to the point where they were tipping over and they were all bent because nobody's buying it. It's shipping like mad. It's making Marvel a bunch of money, but, uh, Nobody's buying it. Anyway, on to our actual books here. The number eight spot is X-Men number 21, the final issue of the fifth volume, and that thing shipped 89,924 copies and uh, puts X-Men up three slots from number 11, which it was in May. Book nine, Planet Size X-Men number one, which I tell you what, I was expecting it to be much higher. I thought it was going to be in the top three, but no, it's uh, number nine. And it shipped 89,263 copies. In the number 15 slot is Wolverine number 13. That shipped 78,545 copies, which shoves it up the list six spots from position 21. Book 22 is Marauders number 21. 64,517 shipped. That is part one of the gala, and it sees the Marauders hop up 26 spots from number 48. Book 32, X-Factor number 10, shipped 55,625 copies. And, of course, that is the final issue of the volume and also the death of Wanda, which, I mean, like we talked about, people wanted this thing. It went up 49 slots. X-Factor number 9 was in position 81. So quite a jump. Quite a jump indeed. Uh, book 38 is X-Force number 20. That shipped 53,754 copies. And uh, there was no issue in May to compare it to. 
Book 47, Way of X number 3, shipped 49,644 copies, dropping it down 13 slots from number 34. Book 48, New Mutants number 19, shipped 49,448 copies, bringing it up 19 spots from position 67. Book 51 is Excalibur number 21, which shipped 48,930 copies. There was no issue with that in May to compare it to. Book 58, Hellions number 12, shipped 46,810 copies, bringing it up 19 spots from number 77. And of course, a lot of these raises here are due to the fact that these are all Hellfire Gala tie-ins, which is why Marvel and DC are so keen on making everything tie-ins. Book 60, X-Corp number 2, 46,495 copies, drops it down 39 slots from number 28, which was expected because X-Corp number 1 was a number 1, and there's usually an attrition of anywhere between 30 and 50% between the first and second issues, which is only compounded when the comic book is really, really bad. Book 64 was Sword number 6, which shipped 44,069 copies. There was no issue in May to uh, compare that to. Jump off the beaten path here to position 70, X-Men Legends number 4, shipped 39,098 copies. I don't know what that says about the future of the Legends series. I tell you, I went from being very excited for it to really just uh, adding it because I'm a completionist. I don't know that I really need this thing in our lives, especially with stories that I, I don't know that they actually need to be told. You know, the Adam X story, sure. I mean, that's one that's been lingering for decades, uh, but... A random X-Factor story, a random other X-Factor story, a random Wolverine story. I don't know that these things need to uh, to be. I'd probably be more interested if they just, uh, if they point one to them, making them part of the actual volumes. Otherwise, you know, they just don't feel very important. From here, we dip into the triple digits. Oh, boy. Book 103 was Children of the Atom number 4, and that shipped 29,512 copies, dropping it down 14 spots from position 88. And finally... In position 119, cable number 11. That shipped 25,100 copies. Uh, there was no issue in May to uh, compare that to, but I'm sure whatever issue came out before this sold quite a bit better than this one did because this is uh, some sad numbers for an X book, though. I mean, really can't blame the book because the book was quite good. It's just a matter of uh, Marvel announcing a cancellation and people, people jump and ship. So what did we learn here? Um, well, we learned that crossovers work, I guess. Uh, People will buy stuff with the branding on it, and, uh, I mean, the books that didn't have the branding, Children of the Adam and Cable, well, nobody bought those issues. Which, uh, you know, I tell you what, if you're interested in playing, like, the long con speculation game here, buy those issues. Buy Cable number 11, because there's so few of them on the planet. (laughs) I mean, there are hundreds of thousands of Demon Days Mariko on the planet that nobody wants. Don't buy that. Buy Cable. Buy Children of the Atom. Pack them away. So then, like, in years and years when people discover these series and want their full runs, well, you'll be one of the few that actually has these issues that nobody wanted at time of a release. But anyway, that will do it for our sales charts for June 2021. Uh, I'm really looking forward to the next one already, just so we can play with these numbers a little bit. I can actually, I can actually make a spreadsheet, and I can't wait for that. I love spreadsheets. <laughs> so I'm looking forward to doing that. But we'll get there when we get there. I do want to send it over to our shout-out department here, thanking the folks who engaged with my social media stuffs and helped to raise the profile of this little program. On Twitter, I want to thank Wayne Burroughs, 21st Century Boys, Mark Jagger, Tyrone Hagens, Longbox of Darkness, Dave Schultz, Chris Bailey, Jeremiah, Billy D., Joe Crawford, and Walt Neeland. 
Over on Facebook, I want to thank Jesse DeYoung, Jeremiah, Pat Sampson, Andrew Franklin, Billy D, and Walt Neeland. Thank you all for the support. And uh, speaking of support, I'd like to thank my patrons, Andrew Franklin, Ed Moore, Walt Neeland, Jeremiah, Jason Colby, The Scary Stuff Podcast, Jesse DeYoung, and Damien. You're all the best, and uh, I can't even put into words what your support means to me. So thank you all so much. Now, if anyone out there would like to get a hold of me, you could do so several different ways. You could find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. You can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com, or you can call into the X-Lapse voicemail hotline at 623-396-JERK. Uh, for blog posts and show notes, you can head over to chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can also join us on Facebook. 90s X-Men is our little group. The complete X-Lapsed archives are available at chrisandreggie.podbean.com, and that is, of course, available anywhere you get your podcasts and noise. And finally, there is the Patreon, which is chock full of exclusive content. You can find that at patreon.com slash xlapsed. That's going to do it for today. I'd like to thank you all so much for choosing to share some time with me. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.